to First Timothy chapter, or Second Timothy chapter uh, two and three. Where because I lost that one sermon, I don't know where we are in our notes. All right, <clears throat> so we're just flopping around here. Hopefully, you'll figure it out. You've got some pages there in front of you, but the real the real sermon here has to do with the transforming power of the Word of God. That's kind of what we're, where we're at, which is the uh, antithesis of the, of the delusion that's around us by false teachers and so forth. Uh, we know, you, know, you know we live in unprecedented times uh, in which uh, our values are being challenged and uh, our foundations of our, of our world, our, our country, sometimes our churches are, are being uh, <clears throat> deconstructed and challenged. So we have social justice, intersexuality. Here's words that we never even knew existed a couple of years ago. Woke, who knew what that was? I, first time I read about woke, I thought it was a joke, and we were joking about it a few years ago. Uh, whiteness, tribalism, council, cancel culture, uh, Black Lives Matter, cultural man, market, Marxism, uh, the pandemic, and everything that goes with that, and on and on we go. These are things that have entered our world. They're challenges to us. And we have to try to understand how God would have us deal with those. <clears throat> As we go back to the scriptures, we see that Timothy is a man who is struggling in his ministry, it seems like. He, he is having a hard time keeping the, the fire kindled. And Paul is, is trying to guide him. Now, he's a man uh, like us. He's under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, lot of different challenges coming his way. And there's, on top of that, there's persecutions. The Roman Empire is very much against Christianity at, at times. <clears throat> Some of the co-workers uh, were abandoning the field of, of, of Christ, as we see in chapter 4. Uh, the apostle Paul is in prison and is facing execution. Internal, internal struggles are going on in Timothy's heart as well. And so with all these things going on, Paul is trying to encourage his friend, his uh, fellow co-worker, in the faith. To continue not just walking with Christ, but serving Christ as a man of God. And that's where we are today. I, I will repeat again the five central messages of the, of the book is that he is in, talking to Timothy about the man of God who is, who is in constant trouble, who is centering his life nevertheless on that which matters, the gospel and on Christ <clears throat> and on the word, who understands the dangers that surround him, especially in the area of false teachers, who is, who is nevertheless convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God. That's our message right now. And then finally, he fights the good fight. And so that'll be our message in the next hour. So far, then, we've dealt with, with these uh, various characteristics. We'll move on to the one concerning the Word. And Paul reminds him, now at this point, something that we all really must grasp. If we are to be men of God, if we are to man up, if we are to be servants of His, and that is that the Word of God is transformative and it, is, it has the power that God uses, it is the power that God uses to change lives. And I really believe that if we don't believe that, if we don't grasp that, then we will mess around with all sorts of other things, with programs and with, with agendas and with fads and with books and pragmatism and whatever else. <clears throat> but if we believe it is the Word of God that truly changes lives, then as we'll see as we go forward, that is where we're going to spend our time in the Word of God, explaining the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, uh, letting the Word of God change us. And so we come to chapter 1. We're going to look at different chapters here. Chapter 1, uh, if we believe in the transforming power of the Word of God, if we really believe that, it's going to become evident in a number of ways. First of all, 
We will, we will value the scriptures as a treasure. We will value it as a treasure. Verse 13 of chapter 1, retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me in, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. <clears throat> First of all, we know that we, uh, the things we value are the things we guard, right? And so we guard our children. We, we take care of them. If they're little, we make sure they don't get in the road. If they get older, we try to guard them from predators of one kind or the other. We're, we love our children and we take good care of them. We guard them because we value them. On the other hand, uh, we don't value grubs and Japanese beetles and stink bugs. So we, we don't care to take care of them, right? We, we kill them because we don't value them. Now that's the two extremes, obviously. But the things we value, we protect. And so Paul talks about that here in this passage. And he talks about two actions. First of all, uh, retaining the standard of sound words in this verse 13. The word standard is the word that means an imprint, such as the imprint of a, of a horse's hoof. It, it, it's, a, it, it's the imprint or the impression left by a seal or an engraving mark. <clears throat> it, uh, it, is, it has a sameness to it. When I've taken my grandchildren into the woods that are near our house, uh, we look for prints of different animals, and we see a deer print, then we know it's a deer. And so we point that out, we show the difference between that and a raccoon or a dog or whatever. There's a sameness to the print, and, that, that, and that's what the word means here. Uh, we are in the business as men of God to retain the standard of sound words, the same imprint, the same message that God has, has given us in the scriptures hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago, it is our job to retain that standard, to take that imprint and take, move it from one place to the next, to one culture to the next, from one area to the next. That message is always the same because it's the standard of sound words. Remember what he said, what Jude said, that we are contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. <clears throat> it's not been, del been delivered twice. There's, there's no difference between what we preach today and what the Apostle Paul taught here. We are to retain that standard of sound words. Secondly, verse 14, we are to guard that treasure. So verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So now he talks about the sound words as being a treasure, something precious, something of, of tremendous value. <clears throat> in the context of this epistle, the treasure was in danger of being stolen by these false teachers who were corrupting the people through false teachings and so forth. And he says here that we must treasure this. So the question we have to ask ourselves today is how much do you treasure the Word of God? Uh, I know all of you, if you're like me, I have dozens of Bibles in my home and in my office. I have all sorts of translations and so forth. But how much do we treasure uh, the Word of God? I shared yesterday a, a brand new study out, uh, just brand new. It was in Christianity Today this last week. <clears throat> and it's a, a, it's a very interesting and disturbing statistic. <clears throat> two years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, two years before, ago, before the pandemic, According to this study, about, and I, I got the number somewhere else, but about 35% of those who claim to be Christians read the Bible. 
By reading the Bible, what that study meant is that you opened the book, opened the Bible, and read something three times a year. That was a Bible reader in this study. Now think about that. In the last two years, that's dropped from 35% to something in the low 20s. Almost half of the readers of the Bible in 2020 are not reading the Bible today. That's three times a year. Now that's, that's an astounding number to me. That's, that's almost inconceivable number. How much can you treasure the Word of God if that's what you do with the Word of God? Three times a year, you manage to open up and read something. Now, that's not treasuring. There's no wonder we're in a fix we're in in our churches and in our country, in our world, where we blame a lot of things on, on the liberals and progressives and different things, and there's lots of blame to go around. But my goodness, if the Church of Christ itself is not in, treasuring the Word of God any more than that, is it any wonder we're biblically illiterate? Is it any wonder that, our, that, that the values of the scriptures are no longer the values of the people around us? And often not even the value of the people in our churches? I mean, I hope that isn't anything reflective whatsoever of you and your churches, but it is nationally. And that is extremely disturbing, I assume, for you as well as it is for me. Paul adds another wrinkle here in verse 14, however. Guard through the Holy Spirit... And so we almost want to airbrush that out and move on. He dwells in us, uh, the treasures have been entrusted to you. Guard this, this treasure through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is actually the fourth time, I believe, in the epistle he's mentioned the Holy Spirit and his power. The fourth time. This is something that I think sometimes even in our best intentions we forget about. Uh, we can become so uh, motivated by our own dis discipline our own uh, morality, our own whatever, that we see the Christian life all about what we do and who we are, and we forget that everything within us, if we're going to be the men of God we're called to be, everything within us must be empowered by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Now, if you take a look at that verse, this is totally off the subject, kind of, but if we talk just briefly about the revival in Asbury, and a lot of people going to Asbury to catch the Spirit. There's something seriously wrong with that mentality, folks. The Holy Spirit is not a virus. You don't go some location to find the Holy Spirit. He's not localized in some temple somewhere. That's Old Testament theology. We're New Testament Christians, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. What's He doing in us? Well, I understand Rod's teaching a whole class on that, so you could come up right now and finish that class off, but I'm not going to let you. But... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he could. It's your church. <laughs> okay, we're not going to fight right now, are we? So we'll see. At, at any rate, I'm, I'm quicker than you. I don't know about anything else, but I think I'm quicker. I, I don't know. I used to be a wrestler. I told anybody anymore that if I had to wrestle somebody, back when I was young, I wrestled the teenagers in our youth group and even really big guys. I usually beat them. That, that made them humble and they behaved, paid attention to me. If I had to wrestle somebody now, I've got to win in the first 15 seconds or, or I'm done for, you know. That's about all I got left. That's totally off the page, guys. Not in my notes. Okay, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Well, sometimes we're accused, if we're non-charismatic like myself, that we don't think anything about the Holy Spirit. That what, is, what does the Holy Spirit do if you're not a charismatic? 
well, about 25,000 things, I think, but at least 25 good ones that we can wrap it all around. He is busy in every aspect of our lives, including energy and the power to live the Christian life. Without him, we have no power. Without him, we just grind out the Christian life. And many Christians are doing exactly that. A number of years ago, when my mother was still alive, when we go home on vacation, I would try to do some things around the house for her and around the yard. And my brother-in-law usually mowed the grass. He lived locally. And so when I was there, we usually came in for a couple of weeks. And I would mow her grass and help him out a little bit. She had a new lawnmower one year. This is years ago. And uh, I, so I decided it was very hot, about 90 degrees out, 95. I decided to mow the grass for her. And I went out and mowed the grass. It's a pretty good-sized yard. And it was the hardest pushing lawnmower I've ever had in my life. I just couldn't hardly push the thing. I pushed it all over the yard. I came in sweating and hot. I said, Mom, don't ever try to do that yourself. You will die. And so I, the next day I told my brother-in-law, how this lawnmower is so hard to push. What's wrong with it? He said, did you engage the powertrain? What powertrain? I didn't know powertrains existed at that point for lawnmowers. So I was not only pushing the lawnmower, I was pushing the powertrain too. No wonder I was wore out. Now let me suggest to you that in your Christian life, if you just feel like you're grinding it out, you're just going through the motions, you're just you know, doing your thing because you know you should, it's boring, it's dull, it's dead, you are not engaged with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you the power and the energy to live the life and to treasure the things of God. How do you get that power? We'll come to Rod's class in a few weeks, he'll tell you. But uh, also, we know that the power is there by our, our choice. We, we call upon him. We choose to follow him. We allow him to have his way in our life. We're filled with the Spirit of God. And so he tells Timothy, you are to do these things. Guard this treasure through the Holy Spirit who lives in you as a child of God. So we will do that. We will guard those things. <clears throat> and then if we go further here with this, and uh, not only have I lost one of my sermons, I lost one of my pages here. Okay, let's go on to the next thing. If we're convinced of the transforming power of the Word, we will value it as a treasure. Secondly, we'll see the ministry of the Word is worthy of sacrifice. Worthy of sacrifice. I want you to go to chapter 2 with me on this. Remember, Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to really do the job to uh, rekindle the flame, to do the, the task he's been called and gifted to do. So how's he going to continue to encourage him to do that? He wants him to realize that what he has been given is worthy of sacrifice. And so in chapter 2, Paul sandwiches the inevitable sacrifice that accompanies the ministry of the word between two vital strategies. Let's start with the sacrifice or the cost. What is it going to cost you to be a man of God? I think in our easy believism world, we tell people the, the simplest things they need to do to follow Christ. Just, you know, just do the, the minimum. That's not what Paul does. Paul goes straight to the cost of being a true man of God. In verse, uh, he gives three illustrations here. The first one has to do with a soldier. Verse 3 of chapter 2. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What did the soldier expect in the first century? He's going to sleep on hard ground. He's going to eat lousy food. 
He's going to endure all matters of, we of weather. He's going to fight an enemy that wants to kill him. That's what a soldier did. But because of, uh, but, but this good soldier is single-minded. He, he doesn't get entangled with all the stuff around him. He doesn't buy a condo on the battlefield. He doesn't start a business out somewhere else. He's single-minded about doing the thing he's been called and, and to do, to be a soldier. He does all he does to please the one who's enlisted him. That's what a good soldier does. The second illustration is a successful athlete. Verse 5, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The Greek athletes before the big events like the Olympics and so forth had to spend 10 months in training. In that training as they prepared, they had prescribed exercises, they had a prescribed diet, uh, they had to follow all the pursuits, all the rules that, that went along with being an, an athlete. If they broke the rules, they were disqualified, even before the meet. If you don't serve Christ according to the rules, that's, that's an unusual word in the New Testament, but we know what it means, His way, according to His rules. If you don't do that, you're going to be disqualified. If you're into sports at all, you can think of a number of of wonderful athletes that never got the ultimate prize because they broke the rules. You can think of a Pete Rose or a Lance Armstrong or a Barry Bonds or a Mark McGuire and others who broke the rules and didn't get the ultimate prize that they were after. But we have to play, he said, according to the rules. So we've got to know the rules. So let's go back to the Word of God here. Do you ever play a card game or a board game with a friend and they have different rules than you? Isn't that crazy? Monopoly or some card game. I play about once a year the game of Rook with a number of people, a few people in our church that play Rook. Now Rook was invented, as I understand it, because some Christians didn't want to play with playing cards and so they invented Baptist poker. Okay? <laughs> and, they, and they called Rook. Now, every time I played Rook with my friends, everybody has a whole different set of rules. And so we can never play till we all sit down and decide what the rules are going to be. And so when he's talking about this good soldier, we have to know not what our rules are, but what his are. How does he want us to be a good soldier and a, and a good athlete of Jesus Christ? What are the rules? And then final illustration is a hardworking farmer. He goes to verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now the only characteristic of the farmer here is hardworking. Now think about how hard the farmer in the first century worked. So I don't have, I don't have, we got a lot of farmers probably in this community here. Okay, so I don't want to pick on farmers too much. I might not make it out of the community. But uh, farming in the fir first century and the 21st century is not quite the same. So these farmers spend all day in the hot sun with a hoe or a shovel or some kind of simple plow. They worked hard. They, at the end of the day, they didn't get any trophies. They didn't have any parades. But if they worked hard and did the job right, they had a good harvest at the end of the season. And that's the illustration he gives here. We have to play according to the rules. We have to work hard. You put the three illustrations together. And what does he say? To be a man of God is going to require true dedication to Jesus Christ. And that should not be an unusual requirement for the child of God.
Jesus told us earlier to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Paul is saying something in, in a similar and a very different uh, set of illustrations here. Why should we be more dedicated to almost anything else than we are to Jesus Christ? Michael Jordan is perhaps the best basketball player to ever play the game. Uh, he wrote a book a few years ago called Driven From Within. And Michael Jordan was out, he said a, a story in his book, he was out on the town with a friend named Fred Whitfield and they were gonna go to a restaurant that night and that, night, that restaurant required a jacket. Jordan didn't have a jacket with him so he went back to Whitfield's apartment to get a jacket, they're about the same size. And he opened up his closet, and his closet was filled with two different kinds of outfits. One was, uh, was Nike stuff. The other was Puma. Nike, rep Nike sponsored Jordan at the time, and Puma sponsored Ralph Sampson. Michael Jordan, according to his own book, took all the clothes that were, were Puma out of the closet, put them in the living room floor, took a butcher knife, and cut them up and then took him outside and threw him in a dumpster and came back. Don't, don't let me ever see you wear anything but Nike again. You cannot ride the fence. I do not recommend you do that to anybody else's closet. Okay, you're not Michael Jordan. Can't get by with that. But I just thought as I read that story, you know, don't ride the fence. Why is he the greatest basketball player to ever live? He's talented, but the level of dedication in that man is reflected in that story. Why should an athlete be more dedicated to his craft than we are to Christ? I don't think that should be the case. And as he presses Timothy forward, he is telling Timothy, look, you are to consider these things that, that I'm giving you here, an absolute dedication to the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that is his cause. Now let's look at his strategy. If that's the dedication we're to have and what it's going to cost us to follow him, what's the strategy? <clears throat> the first one is found in verse 2 of chapter 2. We are to invest our lives in those who truly want to be disciples. Look at verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As, as he's talking here about this great treasure, and of all he's, he's given to Timothy at this point, he is saying to him, look, if you're going to be able to deal with individuals and to take the message forward, you're going to have to take a particular group of people and you're going to have to teach them and train them in the things of God. In our churches, and mine is no exception, we spend a great deal of time, our elders do, in chasing after people that don't really want to walk with Christ. Uh, we're always going after people that miss church for three or four weeks in a row. We're always trying to encourage people to get back among us and be part of us. And that's part of the ministry. Uh, we, we're ministering to people that are not fully dedicated to Christ. And we're, we're hoping that one day they will be. And that's part of the ministry that we have and we should have. But if we look at this verse and look at it carefully, it would appear that a great deal of our energy, perhaps most of our energy, should be spent with those who want to move forward with Christ. He says, look, uh, take these things you've heard from me, these, these sound words, and entrust and, and them to whom? To faithful men, not only faithful men, but faithful men who are able to teach others also. 
And so a great deal of our time is spent with people that don't want to walk with Christ. And I would suggest that perhaps we inverse that and spend a great deal of our time with those that do want to be discipled, that do want to walk with Christ, that do want to spread the word. The people that are nominal will never get the job done. And sometimes we simply ignore the people that do want to get the job done because they're already doing pretty well. But that doesn't seem to be the direction Timothy is being driven by Paul here. We need to be looking in every church, and I don't know hardly any of your churches, if any, we need to be looking in every church at who is going to step up, who wants to really grow, who really wants to walk with Christ. And we can start with this down into our younger people, even our junior high and high school kids. Which of these kids really want to step up, who really want to read the Bible, who really want to know what God has to say? And take, I take them aside, train them, teach them, so that the next generation, they're the ones passing it on to someone else. That seems to be the strategy he's telling Timothy to take. Timothy, don't get all bogged down with the false teachers. Don't get all bogged down with the nominal Christians. You find some people that want to walk with Christ, who, who want to spread the word, who want to take it to the next generation. And you get with them, and you train them, and you put your time into them. They will be, they'll, they'll produce the dividends you're looking for. Now, here's the second strategy back in verse 15. It's the, second, the first strategy is concerning the, the, the means or the method. Get with these young people that want to grow. Now, the means, correctly handling the word of truth. Verse 15 says this. <clears throat> be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. It does little good to hold to the word of truth, to believe in the treasure of sound words, if we're not teaching it and understanding it and teaching it properly, according to proper hermeneutics. The, the methodology of what people call Bible study for a long time is very similar to the, what we might call the, that old Rorschach test that psychologists use, that inkblot test. You know, they put ink on a piece of paper, ask you what you think it means, and what you think it means is supposed to tell you something about who you are. I don't think it does much of that, but nevertheless, that's how many people read the Bible. You know, we look at a passage, we read it out of context, we read a couple verses, then we ask people, what do you think it means? Folks, that is not what he's talking about in verse 15. That's not what he's talking about at all. First of all, he says in verse 15, be diligent. That implies hard work. Be diligent to exert yourself in the word of God. And then he says, as he goes on down, you're to be a workman who needs not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The word accurate here, as most of you know, means to uh, cut it straight. So we're to go to the word of God and in, dil in diligent study, cut it straight, find out what it really means, and then take it out to other people who need to hear what it means. Do you know how hard it is to cut something straight? It's not easy. You know, I, some years ago, I, I was going to, I needed a hobby. Uh, one of the guys I was talking to at lunch took up the hobby of motorcycle riding. Maybe I should have done that. I took up uh, the hobby of golfing. I found that that was not relaxing at all. You know, <laughs> I, I found most of my time I was frustrated with this, that, and the other. Every once in a while I hit a ball straight. That was of the devil. But most of the time I didn't. And so I, I, it wasn't something that really rested me at all. 
So I took up a different hobby, woodworking. I thought that would be a nice creative thing. And so I started doing that. I didn't find that too helpful either. But the first thing I wanted to do, I had the equipment. I was going to cut something straight. I decided to make uh, some picture frames. And dumb me, I was going to make 45s on all the angles. Well, what I found out, if you're cutting 45 angles for a picture frame, you're coming up with, I think, 16 different cuts that could go wrong. And so I started out with this piece of wood for a big picture frame, and I cut it in the, the miters, and then I put it together, and it's crooked. So I put it on my belt sander and started sanding it down, put it together, it was still crooked. I put it on the belt sander again, more. Finally, I had a frame about that big, you know? I, I couldn't get it to be straight. That's how hard it is to cut the Bible straight sometimes. Much of Scripture is very easy. The perspicuity of Scripture is that I've always found that interesting to say that something is easily understood, we invent a word that nobody knows what it means. The perspicuity of Scripture. It simply means it can be understood by most people. And most passages of Scripture can be. But some of it's hard. And we have to work hard, diligently, to cut it straight, to teach the people of God, and to teach ourselves with the Word of God. Paul's not making it easy on Timothy. He's putting two strategies together. He tells them there's a cost a great cost of dedication, and there's a strategy of cutting the Word of God straight, diligently working at it, and then taking that truth to others who also want to cut it straight, who want to eventually take it to others who will cut it straight. And by the way, the reason why many of you are in this room today is because somebody down the line did exactly that. There are people in your lives, and most of you could give testimony to that, who taught you to the Word of God and to love the Word of God. And we're so grateful that throughout the centuries, there have been people who followed, followed this technique and these teachings. Okay, if, we are, if we're going to be convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God, we need to treasure it as, as a great treasure. Secondly, we need to be willing to be dedicated to, to cutting it straight and living it out. And thirdly, uh, we need to make Scripture the focus of our lives and our ministries. And for that, we turn to chapter 3, verse 14. Paul's been talking, if you look at just in the context here, let's back up for a moment. Uh, he's been talking about false teachers really all the way back to 2.14. Then he goes into chapter 3 and he continues that route. And then he comes to chapter uh, 3, verse 14. And basically, he changes direction. And he begins to talk to Timothy, not about false teachers, but about the Word of God in his life. And he says in verse 14, You, however, not like the false teachers, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Now, who did he learn these things from? Well, we know from, from childhood, his mother and grandmother trained him. And we know that the Apostle Paul is the one who did the rest. And so he knows where this has come from. Reliable sources. And he's saying to Timothy then, look at, the, look at these things. You become convinced of that which you've learned from reliable sources. And what is the scriptures valuable for? Verse 15, for salvation. And that from a childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom 
that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. First of all, Scripture gives us the, the, the teaching of salvation. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so what do people need to know to be saved? They need to know the gospel. They need to know the truth of the gospel. But secondly, we have sanctification. The scriptures are good not only for salvation, but for sanctification. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So let's take a look at this verse, a well-known verse. And we notice, first of all, that all scripture, all of it, is inspired, God-breathed. This is God's word. It comes from him. It's breathed out by God. It's not mankind's word. It's not our ideas. It's not suggestions. It's God's word. And he says it's profitable. That means it's beneficial. It's of value. And he gives us four things it's of value for, valuable for, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So the word of God is teaching us how to live life. We, left to our natural inclinations, do not know how to live life as we should. We think we do, and that's part of our problem. We think we're pretty sharp. We think we can do our own thing. But Paul says, through the inspiration of the Spirit, the Scripture teaches us, and it reproves us. It tells us when we're going astray. How do we know we're off track? The Scriptures tell us. It reproves us. And then it, it corrects us. By correcting us here, it means it not only shows us where we're wrong, it tells us how to get back on track. And then it trains us through the constant involvement with the Word, through personal study, and church, church instruction, and so forth. It begins to train us in those ways. When I was a wrestler in high school, we went through training all the time, doing the same routines over and over and over and over and over. Same thing is true in almost any sport. You learn the basics, and you keep on repeating those basics. Then when I got on the mat, these things were second nature to me. I had been trained to do them. They were second nature. I didn't just learn them one day. I went out and did them. I did them weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And the Word of God is in that process of training. Now, I would suggest to you, every time you turn to any passage of Scripture, personally or in teaching others, that one, two, three, two, three, four of, of these things are always on display. We're teaching the word, we're reproving, we're correcting, we're training, maybe not all at the same time, but all the word of God is applicable for that very thing. Now, what is the result? Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we're talking about man up here. The man of God, what is it? And this word for man actually means is anthropos. It's a general nature, men and women both. But the man of God may be what? Adequate, equipped for every good work. The word adequate is a word that means capable or proficient to meet all demands. Equipped is a, basically the same root word. It has the idea of being finished or complete. To understand this, let me give you a few illustrations. The word was used in first century with the idea of setting a bone. So you break a bone, and that bone has to be set. If it's not set, and that's a word equipped, 
If it's not equipped, if it's not set, your armor is going to be mutilated. Again, going back to my wrestling experience, uh, the most, interest, uh, most horrible event I ever saw in a wrestling mat was a guy wrestling right in front of me who did some kind of a move and the other guy's arm got twisted backwards and his elbow came out of joint. And when it came out of joint, I don't know how this worked, but, but it looked like his arm was totally backwards. Looked like the poor kid had been mutilated for life. Had he been left that way, he probably would have been. I mean, his arm would have been backwards. Might have been good for scratching his back. I don't know. But uh, not much else. So they took him to the doctor. They reset the, the joint. And I'm sure he was sore for a while, but he was mended. He was equipped so his arm could function. It was meant to, to function. Let me give you another illustration. This same word is used in the Gospels to talk about mending nets. So when the fishermen brought their nets up on shore, they often had holes in them, and they couldn't catch many fish with holes in the nets. So they equipped them, they mended them, and that enabled those nets to be of value. What does the Word of God do? It mends the holes in our lives so that we can be what God wants us to be. Without that equipping, uh, we are just going through the routine. We're going nowhere. The fish in our life are going through. We're just not making any progress. But when we are equipped by the Word of God, we're in a place where we are living as God wants us to live. But we have to be equipped. And when that takes place, it says we're equipped for every good work. Now, I'm a firm believer in the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, but I'm also a firm believer in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe this, the Word of God is sufficient for demanding all of our nets. It, it, it makes us adequate for every, it, this is all inclusive, every good work. Now, he's not talking about being an engineer or a farmer. He's talking about our spiritual lives, our personal lives. The Word of God is, is efficient and sufficient to deal with any of those issues. We do not need to supplement it with the ideas of humanity, the philosophies and the traditions and the legalism and whatever else that comes along because the Word of God is sufficient to do what the Word of God is to do. Having said all that, however, there's one thing that it can often be missing here, and that is the issue of the application of the Word of God. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to live it. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who have a pretty good handle on Scripture, a pretty good theology, but they're not living it out. It's not working in their homes. It's not working in their personal life. It's not working with their wives. It's not working at work because something is going wrong with the application. It's not been, been made there. I'd read about something in a book and I wanted to test it. I was in England about three years ago or so and I was around Bedford. Now, some of you know that that is where a John Bunyan lived and uh, there and ministered. And John Bunyan is the famous author of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, so there's a museum there, and I've read about this and heard about it in Bedford that is dedicated to John Bunyan and especially to Pilgrim's Progress. So I wanted to see it. So my host, who had never been there, he lived in England all of his life, just lived uh, maybe 10 miles from Bedford, had never been to this museum, didn't even know it existed. 
But I convinced him to take me. So we went down and we went and saw the museum. The museum is very small. There's a church there. And then there's upstairs. You got to buy a ticket from a couple of ladies. You go upstairs and there is this little museum which has editions of all the translations of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, some believe, has been translated into more languages than any other book in the world except for the Bible. And so there was several hundred translations in this little museum of Pilgrim's Progress. And I was fascinated by that and the other little artifacts they had there. And so after a while in the museum, <clears throat> we went back down. And I asked the clerk there, the curator, a question that, this is the question I'd read, or the issue I'd read in a book. And I said to this person, who might have been the same person that this other one wrote about, I said, have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? She said, no. How long have you been working here? About 20 years. So let me ask you another question. You have been working at 20 years at a museum that's absolutely dedicated to one book, Pilgrim's Progress. A book that is that according to testimony has trans, is, uh, has impacted lives all over the planet, been translated into dozens and maybe even hundreds of books. It's all about that, and you've never once read Pilgrim's Progress. No. How about the kids' version? No. Ever see a video? No. Absolutely no curiosity about Pilgrim's Progress. And I thought just as I had read in this other book, what a what a exercise in silliness, in stupidity, no application, a self-willed poverty. I'm actually teaching through Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday night at my church right now. It's not an easy book for people to read today. But nevertheless, it has been a powerful book in many lives and it deserves a read. This lady had self-willed herself to poverty because she didn't even take time to read the book that she stood side by side every day. And we look at that and we think about that and say that is the silliest thing possible, right? And yet, at the same time, we wonder about our own application of the Word of God. Taking the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and applying the Word of God to our lives. And so I believe here, as Paul takes us through this, if we're not absolutely convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God, we're going to be like that lady at the museum. We, we won't care. We're not going to spend time on something that's not going to impact our lives. But if we believe the Word of God changes us, it, it transforms us, transforms our homes, transforms our children, transforms our churches, if we believe that, then like Paul says here, we're going to dedicate our lives to Christ and to His Word and allow it to change us and transform us. Unless we capture that belief in the transforming power of the Word of God, the Church of Christ will not go forward. Our churches will not go forward. You will not go forward. And so I want to encourage you, along with the Apostle Paul, to be students of the Word, to allow the Word of God to do what God says it will do, and transform your lives.